I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad that you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. And this morning we start a new sermon series in the book of Judges. And as we've discussed here at Prairie View before, we Christians are very good at talking about how much we treasure the Bible in all its entirety, at least in theory. But then in practice, we're often guilty of neglecting the parts of the Bible that we don't find entertaining, the parts of the Bible that we find confusing, or the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. Now, all too often, the source of our neglect when it comes to the Bible, well, it's the Old Testament. But it's just as much the Word of God as the New Testament is. I mean, of course, we read the Old Testament in a new and a different way as a result of what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection. But we absolutely still read it. We absolutely still learn from it. And God uses it to challenge and convict and encourage us as his people today. Now, of all the Old Testament books that are often pushed off to the side, Judges is one of the most consistent victims. Joshua mentioned that Bree was not looking forward to a sermon on judges. It's not just our kids who tend to dislike judges. Sometimes we dislike it as well. Now, why do we dislike judges so much? Why do we ignore it so much except for a cute story like Samson that we can sanitize and turn into nice coloring pages? Well, of all the Old Testament books, the content in the book of Judges can be some of the most gruesome in anything That you see the book is not boring. The book does not lack action. The problem is that there is very disturbing action. The book of Judges is filled with brutal stories of civil war, assassination and blood. It's not the kind of book that you want to start out with if you're reading the Bible for the first time or if you're looking for bedtime stories or family devotionals with your little kids. If the book of Judges was a movie, it would be rated R. The content can be gruesome, but maybe it's ignored, not because of the brutality of the content, but maybe we ignore it because of how it might make us feel about God if we're not careful. If we don't read Judges in light of everything Scripture tells us about God, his concerns, his priorities, his character, if we only limit our understanding of God to Judges, then we could walk away with a warped and limited understanding Of who he is and what he cares about. For example, the false teacher Marcion taught that the God of the Old Testament is mean and nasty and violent and ugly. And the God of the New Testament is nice and loving and gracious. And these are clearly two different gods that we're talking about. No, that's not the case at all. Now, that being said, the Old Testament certainly tells us different things about God, possibly in different ways than maybe the New Testament does at times. But this is still the same God in both Testaments, the God that we read of the entire Bible. And to another extreme, some may read the book of Judges and conclude that, well, if God seemed to be okay with some violence on the part of his people back then, then maybe he's okay with violence now. A lot of people would use that as an easy excuse to execute vigilante justice on whoever they don't approve of, all under the guise of saying that God doesn't approve of them. I pray that as we come to the book of Judges, we would not leave with a warped understanding, but that in light of everything Scripture tells us about God, the book of Judges could help us learn to know God better and love him more. 
But I also have a different theory of why we so often ignore this book. My theory is a little bit deeper. It's a little bit more subconscious. My theory for why we ignore the book of Judges is that the book of Judges forces us to confront the messy reality of human sinfulness. It's easy to read the book of Judges, read these stories of the Israelites consistently abandoning God. Consistently committing horrific acts. It's easy for us to read these stories and then walk away and think, you know, thank goodness I'm not like these barbarians. Thank goodness I'm not sinful like these people were. But here's the thing. The same sin that these people wrestle with in the book of Judges is the same sin that you and I wrestle with today. That affects every single human being. Judges totally obliterates the feel-good pop theology of our culture that, you know what, I'm all right, you're all right, everybody's all right. That's not what Judges teaches. Judges shows us that sin is deadly and destructive and far-reaching. And this book forces us to see that up close and personal. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it looking for heroes, And that's not all bad. I mean, there are certainly people in the Bible with admirable qualities. We read about Abraham's faith or Moses's leadership or David's love for God or Peter's boldness or Paul's brilliance, the martyr's perseverance. All those things are good. However, the shocking stories and judges serve to remind us that when it's all said and done, there's really only one hero in the Bible. And it's not any of us. It's God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. So with that, let's open up to Judges chapter 2, verse 6. The book of Judges, the first couple chapters are not arranged chronologically, so we're going to jump back and forth between chapters 1 and chapters 2 to kind of get a good idea of the timeline. We'll start out in chapter 2, verse 6. In our chair Bibles, this is on page 137, and if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one from the welcome desk. But before we do any reading or exploring judges, let's pray together and then we'll start. Father, as we read the book of Judges this morning, uh, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We can look around the world and we can see your power and your creativity and your wisdom, but ultimately to Learn more deeply about who you are. Uh, Your word is the place to look. And we are so grateful for your word that tells us about your concerns and your cares and your priorities, that they might become our concerns and our cares and our priorities. Father, thank you for the book of Judges uh, and all of its grim reality, um, all of its messy darkness. I pray that as we read this book, we would be even more pointed to who you are. That as we see how dark things are with sinful humanity, that we would see the contrast between you and us that much greater. God, thank you for sending your son to die for us. The one who shed his blood, whose body was broken, that we just celebrated at communion. Thank you that even though sinful humanity, even though we are lost, even though sin is dark and deep and dangerous and far-reaching, Thank you for your son who overcame sin. We love you. We praise you. 
We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's start by reading Joshua 2, verses 6 through 9. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. So who is Joshua? Well, he's the son of Nun. Not the son of a Nun, the son of Nun. That would be a problem. So, Joshua was Israel's first leader following Moses' death. And as you look at Joshua's life, as you look at his ministry, his ministry very much mirrors what Moses did. Look at a few of the examples of the similarities between these two men. Number one, God appointed Moses. Same thing, God appointed Joshua. Moses led Israel through their departure from Egypt and entrance to Canaan a.k.a. the promised land. And Joshua was appointed to lead their military conquest of the promised land. Both men appointed by God. Another similarity is that Moses led the Israelites across the Red Sea. Well, Joshua led them across the Jordan River. Jordan River may not be quite as big, but still an impressive feat by the power of God. Another example is that both men were successful. They were revealed by their people. They were faithful to their callings. And both died in an old age after decades of service. But then one more similarity is that with both men, God did not see it appropriate to let them finish the job once and for all. Moses didn't enter the promised land himself. He saw it from a distance, but he never actually got to go in. And in the same way, Joshua didn't finish the conquest of the promised land himself. He made it a long way, but he didn't actually drive out all the people. Now, of course, a good question to ask is, well, why didn't God allow Joshua to finish the job? Well, Judges gives us a couple reasons. On a spiritual level, God wanted to test the faithfulness of his people apart from Joshua. Would they be faithful when Joshua isn't around to hold them accountable? And on a practical level, he wanted to teach his people how to defend themselves apart from Joshua. If they're going to be this nation in the midst of people unlike them, they're going to have to learn to stand on their own two feet. They can't just turn to Joshua every single time something goes wrong. And so while Joshua, Joshua didn't ultimately finish the conquest, he did set the people up for success after his death. Because of Joshua, they have arrived safely through significant opposition on their way to the promised land. Because of Joshua, the land has been allocated up for each of the tribes to inherit. Because of Joshua, they have some strategy of how they're actually going to drive out the people. And because of Joshua, now all they have to do is execute it. All they have to do is follow through. But all that being said, don't be mistaken. Joshua's death was still a major turning point for God's people. 
Because unlike when Moses died, God did not appoint a clear, obvious successor. So you can understand why the Israelites may be looking around at each other and asking, well, what are we going to do now? Who's going to lead us? What comes next? Well, that's where we pick up in chapter 1. Judges 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So all things considered, the people seem to get off to a pretty good start after Joshua's death. The first thing they do is inquire of the Lord. That's always a good idea in the Bible. Inquire of the Lord. What does God have to say? They seem to understand a little bit at this point that even though Moses is gone, even though Joshua is gone, they still have a leader. Their leader is not a middleman between them and God. They can go and inquire of the Lord themselves. So God appoints Judah as the first tribe to lead what remains of the conquest. And as the first half or so of chapter one goes on, the good news keeps coming in. Judah is successful. Jerusalem is taken. Men like Caleb and his younger brother, Othniel, who will be important here in a chapter or two, those men step up to the plate. They lead Israel well. But the honeymoon doesn't last forever. Later in chapter one, they do start to encounter some hiccups. Judah fails to drive out the Canaanites living in the plains. Benjamin fails to drive out all the inhabitants left in and around Jerusalem. Joseph fails in Bethel, and they even sink as low as cutting a covenant, a deal, with a Canaanite. Not supposed to do that. The tribes of Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, they all fail in their respective duties as well. Now, why do they fail? I mean, I thought God was supposed to be on their side, right? I mean, he was the one who was going to drive out all the peoples. The promised land was there for the taking. What went wrong? Well, I'm sure they would have lots of reasons, lots of excuses that they would point to. Specifically, look at one of their excuses in chapter 1, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Really? Iron chariots. That's why they fail. The God who created everything, the God who called Abraham to be a nation of his own possession, the God who sustained the Israelites through centuries of history in Egypt while they were under slavery, the God who freed them from the most powerful nation that existed in the world at that time. The God who commanded the forces of nature to do it. The God who defended them from army after army after army. The God who gave them bread and water and food, everything they needed. The God who did all that stuff didn't prepare for iron chariots. That's essentially what the book is arguing. Really? That's the one thing God couldn't stand up to? Yeah, right. That is not why they failed. They don't fail because of military equipment issues. They fail for far deeper reasons. Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 10. 
And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. You hear the phrase, haters going to hate, plunderers going to plunder. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. The Israelites ultimately fail in their conquest because of their own sin, their own rebellion, their own idolatry and their own disobedience. Now, Joshua had warned them about this well in advance. God commanded them not to fall into this trap. But their sin won out in the end. One of the most obvious lessons of this entire book of Judges is the destructive nature of sin. And these verses show it very clearly. As time went by, slowly but surely, people died off. And as people died off, the generations following Joshua slowly began to forget about God. And not only does it lead to practical and completely predictable chaos... It also leads to consequences directly from God himself. The passage says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. We see it in chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bacham and they sacrificed there. To the Lord. So they made covenants with their enemies. They worshiped their enemies' gods. They did not drive out their enemies like they were specifically told to do. Instead, they mixed in with them, and over time, they became no different from them. Iron chariots. Is that why they failed? No. The people failed in the conquest because they became willfully ignorant. Of God. You know, it's been said before that the worst punishment God could ever give at sinful humanity is to give him what he wants. Well, that appears to be what God does here. It's like God is saying to the Israelites, okay, you know what? You want to live amongst the Canaanites? Fine. You want to be just like them instead of radically distinct and different from them? Fine. They're not going anywhere. 
because I'm not going to drive them out. But trust me, this won't be pretty for you in the end. They will be thorns in your side. And those gods you think you love so much, they're going to end up being a snare for you. You just sit back and you wait. So we're two chapters in. And the tragic shape of the book is already forming. Joshua led them faithfully. God was on their side. The promised land they had waited so long for was right before them. All they had to do was obey, and it was theirs for the taking. And yet they blew it. And that threat of their neighbors becoming thorns in their sides, becoming a snare for them, that was not an empty threat. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The horrible pattern of judges quickly emerges, and the pattern looks something like this, give or take. It starts out with a time of peace, and during a time of peace, they believe they have no need for God. And when you don't have any need for God, when you really believe that, why worship him? Why obey him? Things are good without him, right? Well, when that happens, that means rebellion. And of course, rebellion leads to punishment, oppression, hardship. Punishment, oppression, hardship, those things lead to crying out. Crying out leads to God having mercy, sending a judge to deliver his people. That time of deliverance leads into a time of peace. And you know what a time of peace means? It means people foolishly believe they have no need for God. And they're right back where they started. Over and over and over again, the pattern plays out, not just in the book of Judges, but really throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, again, we see these stories and we are tempted to stick our noses up at these people and think, oh, my goodness, what are you doing? Why can't you get it? Why can't you just obey God? It's so clear. It's so obvious. Well, before we think that, let's remind ourselves again of the inconvenient truth of judges. The danger and the deadliness and the far reaching nature of sin forces us to ask, well, are we really that different? I mean, think about it. How often has that same pattern, more or less, played out in our own lives? Things are going well, therefore we really don't need God that much. Not a very high priority. As a result, we often cease to worship, we often cease to obey, we end up abandoning God slowly but surely. Maybe in our rebellion, we encounter some kind of hardship, some kind of oppression. It could even be some kind of punishment from God. And what does that lead to? Well, of course, at that moment, we cry out. We long for deliverance. Maybe God in his grace gives you deliverance. 
He sets things right. Things go back to normal. That, of course, means time of peace. And a time of peace means we foolishly believe that we have no need for God. It's easy to look down on the Israelites in the Old Testament, on the people of the book of Judges. But we should stop and ask ourselves, do our lives mirror theirs? Does the same pattern happen in our hearts and in our minds that we see in this book? Now, of course, that pattern will play out throughout the book, but especially the first three judges in the book. Othniel is the first judge. If you remember him, he's Caleb's younger brother. He's followed by Ehud and Ehud is followed by Shamgar, all three appointed to deliver God's people. And all three judges do it successfully. In the cases of Ehud and Shamgar, they utterly embarrass those who are oppressing God's people. You can read those stories in chapter 3. And the pattern will continue, albeit in different ways, maybe different circumstances, in the weeks ahead as we examine judge after judge after judge. The same old song and dance over and over again. That's how the book of Judges begins. That's how the book of Judges goes. And really, that's how the book of Judges ends as well. We talked about how dark it is. The pattern is the reason for the darkness. The pattern of sinfulness. Now, we mentioned earlier the temptation to neglect the Old Testament. And one of the many reasons that we give for that is that, you know, it's just hard to find how stories like this can apply to everyday life. Well, that's simply not the case in the book of Judges. As we look at what we've learned today and what we will learn in the weeks ahead, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about the world around us? And what do we learn about ourselves? Well, I have a few suggestions. Number one, again, we learn that sin is very, very real. Deadly, destructive, far-reaching. And the book of Judges forces us to confront that inconvenient reality. Number two, we learn that God's people are all too eager to conform to those around them, even if it means rebellion against and disobedience of God. That temptation to fit in, that temptation to just be a face in the crowd, that temptation to be accepted by those around us, that is a strong temptation. We see it back then and we see it today, albeit in different ways. Another suggestion, we learn that because of these things, because sin is real, because we're all too eager to conform to those around us, God's people are in desperate need of leadership. That's why the judges come around. That's why churches have leaders to guide us and to shepherd us in our walks with Christ, in our faithfulness to our callings and our identities in Christ. But even more specifically than just leadership, we learn that we are in desperate need of lordship. And that we are in desperate need of deliverance. We need a Lord to obey, not just a leader to follow. We need a Savior to deliver, not just a judge to defeat our enemies. The fourth thing we learn is that simply God will not be mocked, as Paul puts it in Galatians. Sin never goes unaddressed in one way or another. I'll repeat that. Sin never goes unaddressed. 
Their sin would not be unaddressed. And your sin and my sin will not go unaddressed. The question is, who will ultimately take the punishment for that? Will it be us? Or will we allow that punishment to be put on the cross of Christ? Number five. God wants his people to stick out. Now, you look at where we are today in history as followers of Jesus. We are not called to drive out those people around us who don't know Christ. We're not called to cease living amongst those people who do not know Christ. But God's desire for our lives to look different than theirs. Well, that desire is just as strong as ever. We are called to be different We are called to stick out because of our obedience and our faithfulness to the God who has saved us. And finally, number six, we learn in the book of Judges and we'll continue to learn in the weeks ahead that God is gracious. If you ever hear anyone insinuating that God isn't gracious in the Old Testament, I would encourage them to look at the book of Judges. Because in the book of Judges, God's patience and God's mercy with his people, God's grace with his people is absolutely unfathomable over and over and over again. In spite of how hard, how hard hearted and how stiff necked his people really are. God is gracious in the Old Testament and God is gracious in the book of Judges. And we will continue to learn just how gracious God is as we read these dark dark stories. Now, that pattern of peace, that pattern of forgetting God and rebellion and punishment and crying out and God delivering. Really, when you think about it, that pattern goes back much further than just the book of Judges. Think about Adam and Eve, our first parents. Adam and Eve were much like these Israelites when you think about it. Just like the Israelites, God set Adam and Eve up for success. They had everything they could have needed. They had a beautiful piece of land that they could call home. And all they had to do was obey. And yet they failed. And ever since then, sinful men have cried out to God in desperate need of deliverance. And when you think about it, Adam and Eve's story, the Israelite story, that's our story. And the good news of the gospel is that a perfect judge, a perfect Lord, a perfect savior, a once and for all deliverer has been provided. You and I are all too often unfaithful to God. Adam and Eve were unfaithful to God. The Israelites in the Old Testament were unfaithful to God. Yet there is one faithful Israelite. And that faithful Israelite is Christ. It's not Othniel, it's not Ehud, it's not Shamgar, it's not any other leader in this book. Jesus is who we look to. Jesus is the judge who gives his people deliverance once and for all. The one who can bring the pattern to a close. Jesus is the judge who doesn't kill his enemies. He dies on their behalf on the cross. And Jesus is the judge who doesn't die and then stay dead and somebody else needs to be appointed. Jesus dies, but then he conquers death itself in the resurrection. Now, the book of Judges, don't be mistaken, will prove to be dark. There's no doubt about that. 
But in the midst of darkness, light becomes even more radiant. And I pray that as we read this book, that an inconvenient confrontation with the sins of God's people back then, and a confrontation with our own sin today in all of its ugliness, would point us to the light of Christ, would point us to the light of the gospel, the perfect judge, the perfect savior, the perfect deliverer, the faithful Israelite who died for us and gives us deliverance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we read the book of Judges, we would be humbled. In a sense, we would be horrified. That's, that's good because there are horrific things in the book of Judges. There are things that we should find shameful and disturbing and, and gruesome. That's good. That's okay. But God, I pray that as we read the book of Judges, as we see some shameful, sinful activity, that we wouldn't forget that we are guilty of our own shameful, sinful activity. I pray that we would be just as disturbed by our own sin as we are by the sins of others around us. And I pray that as we face sin for what it is with all of its ugliness and all of its darkness, that it would drive us even more strongly to turn to your son, Jesus, the perfect judge, the perfect savior, the perfect deliverer. God, thank you that Jesus didn't come to kill his enemies, because if that were the case, then that would include us. We were once enemies of your son, Jesus. We were once alienated from you. And yet you have reconciled us. You have taken us from enemies or slaves, and you have made us sons and daughters. Father, I pray that you would continue working to restore the image of God within us, that all of us are valuable. All of us are of great worth being made in your image, but that image is also tainted because of sin. So, Father, thank you for offering the medicine that we need. Thank you for sending your son to the cross to die on our behalf. I pray that as we read the book of Judges, that cross, even though it was gruesome and dark in its own right, would become even brighter considering the grace that you've shown us and the forgiveness that you offer us. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, the pattern of judges is really all too often our pattern. It's our story. So if you're in the middle of that right now, I pray that you would talk to one of our elders. Talk to them about what it means to follow Christ. Talk to them about what it means to be delivered, to have a savior, to have a good and righteous and perfect judge. If you haven't made that decision yet, I pray that you'd make that decision this morning. Ask them questions, whatever it is that you need to do. But talk to our elders as we sing this last song. We're grateful that you're here with us this morning. We're grateful that you worshiped with us. And I pray that we would all leave here again, just pointed to the light of Christ in the midst of darkness, like the book of Judges.